Welcome to The Brilliant. This is episode 26. the brilliant. You are the ones who we shine the light upon, who are observed, who are truly alive, which is especially wonderful because we live in a world of the walking dead, the gray, a world of life as routine, as a chore. We tell of stars, stories, and chocolate waterfalls. We speak of living anarchy in the shadow of order and necessity. We believe in these stories and that the sharing grows them. So this episode, uh, you know, we're coming towards the end of this first set of episodes, and we are unsure exactly what's going to happen when we resume, which will probably be in June. Um, But uh, this episode, we're going to talk about some listener feedback, which there was a lot of, because last weekend we posted episodes 17 through 19 as a package deal on A News, and we got a lot of good feedback. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about about the news and we're going to talk uh, thematically about science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the feedback was um, some really nice emails, which we're not going to get into today because it's it doesn't quite relate to the topic. But there was um, a good amount of, of feedback in the form of comments, including some actually confusing feedback <laughs> for me. Um, there was a reference to the urban elitism of this show that uh, was associated with quote vast repositories of hard to find books possibly academic libraries and the assertion was that there is a kind of regional elitism and that for those outside of the uh, perceived ivory towers that quote unquote cutting edge anthropology theory always sounds alien and this was I guess odd for a couple reasons I don't really experienced myself as someone that has a uh, vast repository of hard-to-find books, for one. And two, there, there was actually a later in that in that bit of feedback, there was a comment about an obsession with anthropology. And I'm not sure exactly where that's coming from. Um, I don't even know if we've posted yet the episode that's where I talked for a while about Dunbar's number, which was something that was exciting to me, which was an anthropological concept that I pursued for a bit on the show and tried to motivate toward an anarchist perspective, and I guess that could be seen as an obsession, but uh, for the most part, this show, I think, has demonstrated at at best ambivalence at at most, especially from Aragorn, hostility to the idea of anthropology, uh, to the idea that um, outside observers can tell stories about people whose group they're not part of, and uh, we also talk quite a bit about Black Seed regularly on the show that has actually had a couple essays specifically hostile to anthropology. So difficult to understand where that's coming from. I'm always wanting to take criticism as in the, the most good faith way that I can, but I struggle with this particular bit. Well, I think in general, though, 
we've taken our the criticism of our project here in far better faith than, <laughs> than uh, it's like, is appropriate. One of the criticisms I've received is <laughs> we take the criticism that way far too much. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a nerd. I guess you know, I come across as a nerd. That's fine if, if people don't like that. Well, you know, again, like uh, when people make criticisms that are, especially ones that are really just some version of fuck you, I don't like you very much, you know, one has to make a choice or a series of choices. <laughs> and and while I, th- I thought it was it, it was appropriate for us to talk a, l- a lot about them, just, just as, a, as a way for us to have a, an interesting conversation, uh, in general, people who deal with me in, in the ways in which I mostly see on the internet and almost never see in person what can I say but fuck you and this person this particular uh, uh, comment in general ha- has s- some very fascinating uh, things going on because it's sort of it's lots of accusations mm-hmm. and, and some of them f- sort of feel like the person hasn't, hasn't listened to the podcast and because it's so um, like it doesn't have a trolley vibe like it's not just name calling yeah, yeah, yeah. or it's not just it's, it's not trying to like make us into a sucker it, it sort of makes sense to engage in in it on some level and definitely there's a couple points in here i do want to engage with but mostly this just feels like somebody who doesn't really know who we are and who yeah. is just experiencing us as an internet phenomenon that they're engaging with like internet phenomena so specifically this this idea of the elitism of urbanites you know come on 95 percent of people in the in the u.s live in some version of the city you know, especially if you count the suburbs and the and the exoburbs, yeah, and 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 so so to accuse us of the of the elitism of urbanites is to basically say that ninety five percent of people are elite, which is the very opposite of the definition of elite. I mean, not not, not to not to parse them in, in that way, but but like, what are they actually trying to say here? Are they what, what it sounds like they're trying to say is that. Um, like the true anti-civilization perspective or a true green perspective is the opposite of what it is that we're doing. Which, sure, I mean, that's that's easier to take in good faith than that. That's, um, that's somehow philosophy and academic trappings are themselves part and parcel of civilization, and the more you invest in that, the more you're actually reproducing civilization. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's a totally fair point. And and if they if they cited some examples of of when we've done that, I totally would engage with that absolutely in good faith because that feels like you know you're you're trying to make some specific point. But this is just sort of a blanket accusation. It it, it doesn't um, and and even that like they just say that we do it by our style and approach mm-hmm. made of people with easy access to the vast repositories of hard to find books. I mean, by and large, when we are talking on the on this podcast and, and referring to notes, all these notes and, and the things we're referring to are publicly available things. Like they're on the internet, which you know, for better and for worse, is the is is the same place where this person is making their comment towards. It's a vast repository of hard to find books. Yeah, as well. absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is probably the fourth or fifth time that the label of academic has been laid at our feet. And let me just say unequivocally. I have never been paid for anything that remotely resembles sophisticated intellectual labor. I have not participated in that in any way, and you know, the way that I've survived in this world has been for doing sh- shitty physical work. The accusation of academic, you know, it, it almost always, especially when it's not clarified it, as, as is in the case here, 
almost always has that ugly characteristic of, of anarchist-seeming uh, anti-intellectual. This person actually specifically said, I'm not doing that. They We're, said, I'm not being anti-intellectual. Then what are they accusing us of? It's Because basically... Okay, so uh, just to, 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 I guess, get into this thing a little bit more, this person uh, gives lots of shout-outs and valorizes the work of Aaron Schwartz, which, for those of you who don't know, was one of the founders of Reddit, and it basically was a, a techie person. They were very young, and they were somehow associated with the MIT uh, University, I'm not sure, as a student, but, uh, but they were basically on trial for the crime of putting uh, a bunch of hard drives into a closet in MIT and, um, uh, and basically trying to download the MIT, like a, a locked box of MIT documents to hard drives to make them publicly available. Yeah, it was JSTOR. Yes, yeah, JSTOR, which yeah. is an academic repository of journals. Yeah. But, but basically what, what the, they were accused of is, is being a, a type of seed for for torrent sites and 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 you know for the the, the free sharing of, of information which obviously anarchists in general are for and and so Aaron oh and and, and so the punchline on Aaron Schwartz is that in the context of um, of this possible prosecution or even probable prosecution on some level they kill themselves so so they're now they've become a bit of a martyr to the open access crowd and um, uh, and and rightfully so. To accuse us of basically not being as interesting, engaged, relevant as Aaron Schwartz is to ignore a pretty small or maybe a, a fairly significant thing, which is that I am one of the founders of the Anarchist Library, which is a repository of some copyrighted and a lot of not copyrighted anarchist material. And so it is true I'm not Aaron Schwartz. I, I didn't uh, free information from, from the lockbox of a university because I have no ties to universities, which, you know, again, makes the academic accusation sort of a little hollow. But to say that I'm not also interested in the free spreading of information is extremely facile and, and just to, is ignoring context. It's also the third time, I think, that we've been accused of being somehow state agents. <laughs> How do they do that? Yeah, the potential counter-subversive, hostile nature of the brilliant still is a relevant question to keep in mind. And that's in the context of saying it's something... The, the assertion is something like it may be worse than oversight what they're doing. Well, actually, th- this is something to engage with. And I, I feel like this this accusation happens all the time, not just to, to us and to this project, but uh, essentially to what is branded the nihilist perspective. If if one is pessimistic about struggle, especially struggle as it looks in the North American context, then somehow one is being counter-subversive and hostile. And, um, and that is a fascinating, logical fucking ploy. Uh, which of the fallacies is that? Um, I'm sure... <laughs> I don't it, even... It's some version of the argument for, from fallacy, which assumes that if an argument for some conclusion is fallacious, then the conclusion is false. And and so what's the what's the primary fallacy or yeah the the primary argument that's being made? Well, that's that in the case of this commenter that that they are a revolutionary that that they're doing the good work that that you know will bring us to the holy land and and to express skepticism toward that is to disagree with the conclusion yeah <clears throat> which we don't to be clear <laughs> i don't agree or I, I don't disagree with the idea of a free world an anarchist world but sure yeah but i'm saying the fact that i'm skeptical towards your means doesn't yeah. mean that i'm skeptical towards your ends yeah i i, I wouldn't go there but that's fine
And there was also a complaint that we never talk about prisoners or we don't talk about prisoners enough, which I qualify because we have talked about prisoners, but I guess we don't talk about it enough. And, you know, that's, again, a, that's an argument about content. Uh, I would say other problem. anarchist podcasts do more of that. Yeah, and, and actually with that in mind, I, I have to say I, I'm going to change my, my uh, tune on a particular anarchist prisoner, for those of you who don't know, and this is sort of bleeding into the news uh, section. Eric King... Uh, is a a young person who just basically took a a non-cooperating plea deal and is uh, going to serve 10 years uh, for lighting several containers of gasoline in a Kansas City court. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, like, the details are a little sketchy, but but the the bottom line is is that they broke a window at, at a court building and lit two uh, two containers of gasoline on oh. fire. They didn't combust. They didn't ignite. Wow. And so they're basically going to serve 10 years for breaking a window and, and, and a failed firebombing. But when I first heard about them, the, the first sort of word on them was uh, sort of filled with, like, vegan, 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 vegan prisoner, vegan prisoner. And and so, so you know, to, I sort of pass by the, 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 the details of the story because, like, you know, if they're emphasizing so much their veganness in general, the crime that they that they that they would be accused of is um, you know something about animals, animal interference, um, and and yeah. So for the first time, I actually read what they what they were accused of, given that they um, just did the plea deal this week. And uh, first of all, they their website emphasizes their anarchism as much as their veganism, which either changed or whatever change of emphasis, and um, and yeah, ten years for basically uh, a failed bombing of a court building, which is a pretty <laughs> pretty thing, pretty pretty significant uh, act. Anyways, uh, the other story we're going to talk about is uh, at least a little bit about this new scientist article titled, There's No DNA Test to Prove You're Native American. Which is mostly interesting because it says things that we all already know, which is sort of interrogates the idea of blood quantum and how blood quantum is is the slow genocide of a lot of native tribes, um, and sort of the idea of what is what what does it mean to be a member of a tribe or what's a relative in in the context of a of a world that wants to quantify these things, and instead of sort of speaking from the story, speak from the math. And, uh, of course, this is particularly interesting to me because my uh, maternal grandfather is a Canadian, Ottawa, um, and wasn't listed on her birth certificate either way. But the Canadian Ottawa plus my maternal grandmother's American Ottawa actually didn't add up to blood quantum or enough blood quantum for me to be considered uh, a native, whereas my mother is, is on the uh, tribally aff- affiliated and uh, so, so this math, you know, had direct consequences on my life. But um, uh, mostly, it's it's just a, a fascinating sort of conversation about how science, in this case, is is used to enforce policy. Mm-hmm. And so, when you say slow genocide, you mean because by this system, that what that people would be gradually there would be fewer and fewer 
mathematically identified natives. Absolutely, uh-huh. absolutely. And um, yeah, because it, most tribes basically uh, ask you questions about your quantum, and uh, very few tribes. Like usually, the uh, the the math you need is. 25% blood quantum calculation to, to be verifiable. Some only require you to be one-eighth, but mostly it's one-fourth. Mm-hmm. And this becomes significant policy-wise because when tribes have things going on like casinos that pay out revenue, then suddenly it becomes this commodified economic argument of how much blood gives me money. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's... Um for a lot of people, that they immediately want to turn this into a conversation about casinos and fishing rights uh-huh. and the the perks, quote unquote, uh-huh. of being native. But um, but the other part of the conversation, the one that I'm more interested in, is one about who am I, mm-hmm. and and how the the answer to the question who am I is becoming more and more complicated. Um, but to speak to your point. Some of the things that have been happening in tribal politics that have been extremely narrowly, especially outsiders who look at it just like, you know, your jaws drop, is that certain tribes that have casinos um, have actually rearranged their own math to drop existing tribal members from the rolls. And sometimes sometimes it's been done in a context that's very much like family units having, you know, overly subscribed to the board of a, of a tribal management like like the council and dropping families that they don't like and wow. so it really has taken on like that that aspect of it has taken on these extremely gnarly characteristics but um, but again the the part that I'm much more interested in is is the idea that especially outside the reservation that you know in X number of generations which arguably is one or two because of like I'm two generations removed from the language, right. and so basically, and 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 I'm outside the rules, so I'm not counted. And so you know, basically, my generation or, or my children's generation, if I were to have them, you know, you basically you're talking about a, a way in which people stop being natives, right? And um, and then of course this article takes it from the perspective of saying that there's no test, there's no blood test, there's no uh, yeah, there's no test that that verifies indigeneity at the end of the test. Um, anyways, it's, it's a, a complicated spectrum of conversations. The article's called There's No DNA, DNA Test to Prove You're a Native American, and it's from the New, new Scientist, and you were going to ask some questions. Oh, just uh, when you called it slow genocide, I mean, is, is part of the indigenous critique that specifically this was crafted so that over the course of generations the colonists would have this sort of war of passive or war of, of, of passive mathematical attrition that would, you know, over the course of generations, just ground out anyone's identity? Yes, that's the symptom. Mm-hmm. But the cause is, like, if, if one wants to complete the process of genocide... Assimilation. Um, yeah, uh, this is sort of like one of the ways in which you can describe what assimil- assimilation is. But, but the first step in assimilation is you destroy the language. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, another step is... Is that you basically like you remove as many people as possible from land base, right. and so that looks both like you know there's an Ottawa reservation in Oklahoma, you know that's a removal from land base, yeah, um, and then you basically start to clear the reservations, making it so economically unfeasible to live in, in the context of a reservation that very few people do, 
Um, I think in the context of my family's connections to reservations, it's almost entirely old people that live there. It's mm-hmm. basically the most poor and the most most right. old. Um, anyways, just an interesting article. We can move on. Sure. So the main theme of the episode is going to be science and what an anarchist perspective on science might look like and how it gets talked about in different ways. I've said this on the show before, but I'll just rehearse it briefly here, that I was very much um, a science-oriented kid. I spent a lot of time reading books that whose terminology was really beyond my grasp as a kid and, and was really interested in microorganisms, invertebrates, um, things that were far removed from the human form. And growing up, I envisioned myself becoming a scientist, so I guess I envisioned myself becoming an academic ironically enough, and um, yeah, went through uh, college and got my bachelor's in biology and philosophy, and uh, I did, in the course of doing that, publish one formal scientific paper, and pretty much by the time I was 19, 20, realized that I, that was not something I wanted to do with my life, and that what I was interested in was anarchism, and uh, so really just for the past couple, those last few years was operating on inertia, and by the time I had my degree, I was so fucking done with having that uh, be where my life was going, but science nonetheless informs a lot of my worldview to this day, although I would say now I'm more uh, a much more skeptical person than I used to be, but um, I guess all of this is to frame it by saying I consider myself coming somewhat from an, an insider perspective in the way that I'm having this conversation, but not in a formal or professional way. Yeah, and I mean, similarly, but not as a biographical version of the story, uh, I came to a critique of science after nearly completing a degree in chemistry. And um, during my studies, I worked in laboratories, I worked in the both on campus and off, and uh was very excitedly engaged in the science of of chemistry and and sort of how the world was composed. But, yeah, that's enough for an introduction. Sure. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this was um, because of some engagement that we had had with people who listened to the show, which I'll get into later, but it was basically around the way that uh, we had talked about science in past episodes, and so I just wanted to hash it out here and have it be clear, I guess, what our, our perspective was. And more more broadly, um, you know, we're going to refer to articles by John Jacoby and William Gillis, but not because they're relevant in the context of the show, but because they, to some extent, were engaged with both Black Seed and with just conversations we're having in general. Um, Jacoby's article uh, is in response to an article from the Anvil Review. Mm-hmm. Which is the publication that, that I publish. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so one of the problems I have with the way it gets talked about specifically in anarchist circles is that there tends to be what I see as this false dichotomy between the ardent scientific realist whose worldview is very much informed by science and who sees science as the only reasonable perspective that one can have on the world. And then on the other hand, the critic who 
sometimes is an ill-informed person and is easy to caricature and maybe associates science somehow intrinsically with this Western perspective and finds the rejection of that and the embrace of perceived anti-Western perspectives or pagan perspectives or something like that as being an essentially anarchist act. And I find myself in strong disagreement with both camps here. And one of the problems with the discussion is that uh, the term science is incredibly indeterminate. It's like saying philosophy. It's, it's incredibly open-ended and it can mean any number of things. It can mean scientific method or a scientific epistemology, a way of knowing about the world. It can mean the popular belief in science. Science is a sociocultural phenomenon, general belief in science. And it can also mean technocracy. It can mean the fact that, uh, that we live in a world that is largely managed by experts and that ways of knowing about the world, facts about the world or perceived facts are largely kept to a certain elite, and that it, the way that knowledge and applied knowledge develops is in accordance with class interests and state interests. And these are all very different things. It, it doesn't make sense to say I'm critical of science in the broad sense. And so the way that I would like to talk about it for most of the discussion is, is the empirical method applied in a certain systematic way. If one were to take an anarchist perspective on on those different aspects of the definition that I just laid out, you know, a lot of it makes sense to, yeah, reject out of hand. A, a critique of technocracy, sure, that seems totally well-placed. It's a critique of specialization, like we were talking about last week with the situationists, and a critique of the way that human effort is motivated to, to of course, in a lot of cases, um, just come up with uh, nastier industrial methods, nastier chemistry that finds its way uh, into the biosphere, that uh, a lot of it is motivated toward building weapons of various kinds. Sure, it makes sense to be critical of that. It makes sense to be critical of the way that that knowledge is hoarded in the way that Schwartz, Schwartz was against, that we talked about earlier. It makes sense to be against this uh, culture of prestige that is associated with certain experts. And then, as far as the, the second part that I laid out there, this sort of popular belief in science, it's basically become the middle-class Western religion. It functions theologically. It gives people a sense of meaning. It tells them what the world is like. And a lot of... It, it's a shortcut for, for truth. Yeah, it's a shortcut for truth. Um, one thing when I was uh, in the process of, of uh, taking notes for this episode, I was amazed to learn that supposedly a third of self-described atheists in the United States say that they look primarily to science for moral guidance. Wow. It's yeah. incredible to me. Um, and that that number supposedly is increasing. And you have, of course, these, I would call them evangelical religious atheists like Sam Harris, who absolutely assert that science can answer moral questions for us, that we can look at the, the biochemistry of human beings and find out what is good for them, and therefore arrive at moral principles. Sam Harris is also for a militaristic solution to what he calls Islamic fascism, and is also for a one-world government. So. Sure. I mean, w one of the most clear people who sort of has that, that vibe is um, Fred Woodworth, who publishes the anarchist magazine The Match, 
which is oh, yeah. either the oldest or second oldest uh, current English language uh, anarchist publication. And he sort of falls, he, he's also extremely hostile to monotheistic religions, writes lots and lots of tracts that are essentially using that same sort of verbiage. Um, and, you know, it's hard to disagree with him on mm-hmm. some level. It's, it, it's really, for me, a, a matter of emphasis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't live in a world where I'm being hounded by, like, I live in Berkeley, California, which arguably is a secular type of fascism, but <clears throat> but it's absolutely not uh, Christian or is Islamic. Yeah, I mean, I can see, um, you know, when I when I was younger, when I was describing myself uh, you know, growing up as a kid, I, I think I had a, a little bit of the evangelical atheist streak. If you're living in that kind of um, that kind of little micro society where you're encountering people who seem so bewildered and baffled by their monotheism, I can see how you would want to motivate aggressively this kind of solution. But you know, when you you see where you know it's not just Sam Harris, that whole sort of clique of evangelical atheists—they're all absolutely for the state. They're sure yeah, they have no real problem with militarism and yeah. and that sort of thing. So and then. Uh, Lastly, when we're, I guess, talking about scientism or, or big S science or whatever you want to call it, is, of course, the pro- progressive worldview, the idea that that's, uh, there is objective scientific progress and going along with that is social and moral progress and that the destiny of humanity is to acquire most or all of the knowledge in the universe spread to the stars and so forth, and that, that of course, can motivate all kinds of authoritarianism. And so it makes sense to reject that out of hand. But when it comes to just the systematized empiricism that I was talking about before, it's not so clear what the anarchist perspective should be. And so I wanted to engage a bit with Jacoby's piece, um, Jacoby having reached out to us after some comments I made about science. And he wrote a piece a while ago called The Revolutionary Importance of Science. And this appeared in his publication, not just his, but a a group's publication, The Wilderness, which I'm sorry to say to this day has one of the worst names of any publication I've heard. Um, And I don't mean to start things off in a bad faith way. That's just an editorial comment. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, he was responding, as Aragorn said, to a piece in The Anvil, written by Alex Gorian, and Jacoby spends a while mostly attacking Gorian for his definition and doing what he sees as um, a a kind of slippage in terms where Gorian keeps referring to science, capital S, and it seems like sometimes he's referring to a way of knowing, sometimes he's referring to the culture around it, and basically saying that this is imprecise, and I find myself mostly agreeing with him. And he also spends a while saying that what Gorian doesn't acknowledge and what Jacoby asserts a lot of anarchists don't acknowledge is that a lot of scientists and philosophers of science have the same kinds of criticisms that anarchists have of science. And I have found that to be true as well. And again, I find myself mostly agreeing with Jacoby. Where I think we differ is a little bit that um, he gets into here, and I'm just going to read, this is about halfway through his piece. For one thing... Even if this approach, by which he means science as a way of knowing, has some real problems, the alternatives are even worse. Mysticism, religion, and various forms of obscurantism have been the primary tools of the powerful seeking to justify their power. Science, logic, reason, empirical evidence, has been the tool that has cut off the legs of those beasts. Science is what allows us to demystify power relations and the world around us so that we can properly respond. Otherwise, we are left making decisions that do not, 
For example, acknowledge evolutionary processes, economic trends, sociological tendencies, and human nature. This is as absurd as making decisions without acknowledging the laws of gravity. Worse, we are left not believing in the laws of gravity because a monarch or tradition or divine revelation has told us so. Yeah, this is... I mean, this whole way of um, sort of befuddling your enemies while declaring the clarity of, of, of your team... This is almost the definition of bad faith. Basically, any any perspective, one that calls itself mystical, one that calls itself religious, one that calls itself obscurant, obscurantist, all could make the exact same argument that, that they make there, which is that science mystifies power relations and is used by those in power. So, so this is just a circular form of name calling, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I don't. I don't find myself disagreeing. Um, I want to read a little bit more of of what he writes, and then uh, I'll get into some of what I have to say about it. Yeah, I actually don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> I actually think you should have stopped halfway through because because I think, as an example, it says here, science, logic, reason, empirical evidence has been the tool that's cut off the legs of those beasts, meaning the those seeking power, meaning those in power, and it's just so objectively untrue that uh, that I just think it's sort of room to pause sure. as to what's sure. the motivation for this article in the first place. Sure. Now, obviously, on some level, it's just a, a ham-handed attempt to say, I'm a scientist, therefore a true good person, i.e. anti-authoritarian, i.e. you know, beyond anarchism type person. But, um, but to me, that again, this is just an assertion, an assertion that, that again, in a circular fashion, could be made by any um, system of beliefs in in arguing against any other system. So you can read on if you mm-hmm. so desire. Well, I mean, sure. So part of what Jacoby wants to do is, what I see him doing partially is, is trying to rescue the word and say everything that's bad about science, everything that you can say that's bad about science is actually what's bad about technocracy. And everything that's, uh, that is good about it, this sort of skeptical, critical thinking, independent mind... Is science. That's so. possible. Mm-hmm. But but again, I do question people who obsess so much on etymology or like on this sort of like that if we find the right word mm-hmm. and, and, and I definitely say this from a long history of of being involved in this, like if we if we just agree on the word, then somehow we've done the the hard work. Mm-hmm. And I I definitely don't think that that's true at this point. Mm-hmm. After 26 episodes of doing a podcast with someone who's that way. Um, (laughs) All right, so Jacoby continues, Some have argued that science only justifies the prevailing order. Gorian, for example, might cite the medical industry's tendency to influence, quote, scientific, ironic quote, studies in order to boost their profits. But the problem here is a lack of science, not too much of it. Furthermore, scientific findings on ecological devastation and climate change have presented a profound challenge to the prevailing industrial order, which I completely disagree with in every, every way. It is the religionists and their obscurantism who are promoting the greatness of industry and glossing over its negative consequences with climate change denial. This basically seems like a libertarian talking about, about how capitalism doesn't truly exist in this world, and if we had true capitalism, then everything would be all right. I mean, this this is basically an incredible howler. In the face of growing ecological devastation, I am not ready to dispose of science for some unclear or worse alternative. What is needed now is a group of people who are dedicated to cutting through bullshit with the strongest tools they have and responding appropriately. 
falling into mysticism or relativism, as some, quote, radicals, ironic quotes, which I can't fucking stand, have proposed, might feel good, but it makes our analysis impotent. A dangerous thing when the situation we are facing is so dire. So I, I don't buy that scientific thinking proper is needed to notice and understand what's wrong with the world. I don't buy that it is it is um, it is necessary to, to perceive that ecocide is happening. I think that something that reveals itself quite plainly to the senses. Um, part of what is happening is that Jacoby is throwing simultaneously a narrow and a wide net. A narrow net in that he liberates the term science from all the baggage of technocracy and hierarchy and um, the sort of uh, diluted popular science that uh, forms the middle-class religion that I was talking about earlier, and at the same time casts a wide net where he wants to say that uh, noticing the absence of a, a particular organism that used to live in a place, so noticing that there are fewer insects chirping, is a scientific observation, that what hunter-gatherers were doing when they tracked prey or became aware of the way that various plants would respond to different stimuli was science. And so it's a way of rescuing the term, which becomes a kind of, um, as you were saying, maybe a, a tiresome sort of semantic exercise when you know, it's not necessarily so important that we agree on the points. But I want to also in, it, it push this a little further because um, Jacoby says most of, uh, seems to want to say that things that are bad about science emerged with the Industrial Revolution and the corresponding technocracy. Whereas I think we can see the toxic tendencies of a certain way of thinking or becoming really fixated on a certain way of thinking earlier. I think we can see with Rene Descartes and Sir Francis Bacon the kinds of things that these founders of the scientific revolution were saying before industrialism had emerged really at all. They were saying things like that the application of scientific reasoning will allow man's mastery over nature. They were trying to, um, or, or they were opponents of of uh, folk medicine and that sort of thing. They were opponents of the non-specialization and non-institutionalization of this way of knowing. And so what I think we see is that becoming excessively fixated and reifying a certain way of thinking is itself toxic. And that, to me, it seems like the healthier attitude is just to be skeptical in general. Um, I consider myself very much an empirical thinker, and I'm not hostile to that in the least, but I think... There's something about the desire to rescue the word here that speaks to that same kind of obsessive way of thinking that I, I see emerging earlier. Yeah, I, I mean, in that, in that section and the section before, what I'm reminded of is this characteristic that seems to really have been encouraged by the Internet, but, but that I came to, to despise beforehand, which I guess I would call utopian thinking, which is this idea that uh, what... Our project is, as a creative thinker or a radical, is to imagine a better world and then test that better world against the rocks of reality. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and you know, once we become sort of like a bit more advanced, you demonstrate that whereas a, mystic, a mystical view of reality fails when I dash it against the rocks in this way, my view of reality, that of, let's say, empiricism does just fine being dashed against the rocks of reality because it flexes and and is and is amazing and and perfect and um and so in this case it's it said in the face of growing devastation i'm not ready to dispose of science for for some unclear or worse alternative so okay 
we re- recognize already from the essays that that mysticism and religion and obscurantism those are worse than scientists science which perhaps is, is a valid point but why is it that science is a partic- is, uh, is successful and, and that argument isn't necessarily made it's just a, a repeated assertion mm-hmm. and um, and it's not that I, I necessarily just want to debate this on the on the level of logic I just basically think that at any time you're talking about a uh, a system of belief that's entirely trenched in in this current world they're all they're they're all equally bad and and I just repeating assertions do, doesn't improve one of them in comparison to any of the others mm-hmm. yeah I mean, I mean I also say weakness of the piece is that uh, religion mysticism and obscurantism are never defined they're just uh, stated as the bad um, and you know all in all I, I don't as I was saying I don't it's not that I necessarily agree with Jacoby's conclusion so much as his emphasis. But uh, I want to transition into, with the time we have left, talking about a few of the philosophers of science that had, I think, healthier attitudes toward this way of knowing. And so maybe you could talk about Feyerabend? Yeah, I mean, of course, the first question is uh, how to pronounce his name correctly. <laughs> so we'll call him we'll call him Big F and... Uh, uh, get away from that this entirely. Is, this is the author of uh, Against Method. Yeah, and and Against Method is is not a political book, but it it, it does refer to its argument as being epistemologically anarchist, um, concluding that there is no useful or exceptional uh, exceptionalist methodological rules governing the progress of science or the growth of knowledge. The reason that I like this guy, and and we read both books or at least some sections from both books in the reading group years ago, and, and this reminds me that I would like to do it again, but is that he frames his project much more in terms of interesting questions rather than in terms of answers. Um, so I'll just uh, give you an example of some of those questions, and then I'll just sort of speak to what he said his motivation was. So some of those questions are, what's so great about knowledge? What's so great about science? What's so great about truth? And to me, these these are the questions that have driven me in, in, in my life in general. Would be sort of, I'm surrounded by people who are so convinced of the correctness or whatever of, of their perspective. And I don't share their enthusiasm. And, and I find in general when I ask the question, you know, why is this so exciting? That the response is some version of "shut up, you're a reactionary," mm-hmm. and this is definitely the a thing that we talk about a lot in the context of critiques of the brilliant podcast. Is that by sort of uh, crit- critiquing a, a certain sort of insurrectionary orthodox, "shut up, you're a reactionary." <laughs> so anyway, so he says, one of my motives for writing against method was to free people from the tyranny of philosophical obfuscators and abstract concepts such as truth, reality or objectivity, which narrow people's vision and ways of being in the world. Formulating what I thought were my own attitudes and convictions, I unfortunately ended up by introducing concepts of similar rigidity, such as democracy, tradition, or relative truth. Now that I'm aware of it, I wonder how it happened. The urge to explain one's own, own ideas, not simply, not in a story, but by means of a systematic account, is powerful indeed. Sounds pretty Aragorn. <laughs> it's <laughs> pretty Aragorn. <laughs> now, now I know. <laughs> uh, now I know where it came from. And it's, it's interesting the way he starts his, his book off is almost exactly how uh, 
I always refer to this book because it was one of the most influential books to me, but it's very similar to how Beyond Good and Evil starts. Mm. Where, you know, what, why truth? Why do you want truth? And, um, yeah, and I think it, he's getting at that kind of obsessive core I was trying to get at with maybe the, the reified scientific orientation that dreams of total knowledge and, and mastery. And there's something about that way of knowing that seems to have the seeds of authoritarianism in it to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, most of these perspectives I, I appreciate because they're part of a process. Like, like most of us are constrained greatly by, by the ways in which we're given information or knowledge as, as we age. And so for me, the reason why the biographical version of my own, my own story like, I would say that more than being, quote-unquote, anti-civ, I'm against the truth system called science. Mm. And, and so being against that, that, uh, that truth system means eventually I, I lent myself to, to being against all truth systems. And so, obviously, post-structuralist perspectives be- became appealing to me for, for a, a big chunk of time, and definitely my escape from, uh, from chemistry and from thinking of science as being this uh, a clear world system was, was philosophy, or, or specifically the French post-structuralist thinkers. But once I sort of processed that information and, 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 and gained some sort of familiarity with it, um, you know, my question, like all the rest of our questions, is sort of what's next? What, what does one do with this information? And so what I like about the anti-civ perspective is that on some level the anti-civ perspective has an answer to that question, right? You destroy civilization. But it doesn't answer it in so many ways because, of course, civilization, I think, is a great way to describe a certain uh, story, a certain a path of how we got here from somewhere else. But I don't think that civilization is necessarily as, as useful as Marxism is, sadly, because it doesn't ever sort of describe something specifically. So in other words, Marxism at some point talks about the labor labor theory of value and and up and down talks about the economy. Whereas I don't think that, and and the the reasons for this, of course, because the anti-civ critique is more of a historical critique rather than uh, attempting to be science in the way that Marxism is. Anyways, the the long and short is is as an anti-systemic theory proponent, um, uh, is sort of how to how to think through these questions from the perspective of trying to think about like now what do we do, and and I will say and I, I want to mention a, um, a a piece of anarchist propaganda that I think was one of the few attempts to be imaginative about these questions from the from like from the perspective of anti-civ perspectives, and that's a a, a thing written by um, Magpie called Post Civ. Yeah. Now, one one of the things I was going to try to get into earlier in this conversation was some version of that science is a great way to talk about how to think, mm-hmm. which usually isn't what happens, mm-hmm. and it's a way to think about how to build the future. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when you talk to red anarchists, they basically talk about how, you know, if our widgets were actually meaningful, if they were actually relevant, <laughs> then then we could have a widget full conversation about a better world. Yeah. And, a, and a lot of the people who write these science articles, right, they end up being software developers or people who work in the in, the, in IT. And lo and behold, they talk a lot about how IT and computer systems are going to build a better world. Yeah. 
Which is actually something, to, to Jacoby's credit, that's interesting about him, because that's not what he's talking about at all, and that's not where he's coming from. He's also 19. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, his mind is exactly the type of mind I, I could foresee. Going down that path? Yeah, oh, okay. absolutely. Um, but, uh, I, mean, I mean, one thing that you'll see as a preface almost all of William Gillis's writings is that he's a former primitivist. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, where I'm going with this, with talking about post-Civ, it's basically meeting those pro-science people where they're at, but basically saying, like on some level, he's thinking through out loud the problems of desert. Like, in other words, if we're not going to get a cataclysmic transformation from this world to the next, which, as far as I'm concerned, is probably true, then what does that mean for whatever it is that a value system is in practice? Because, in, you know, by and large, like, the reason why anti-civ people are made fun of by pro-science people is because their practice is laughable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's usually highly individualistic and, and highly sort of idiosyncratic. Yeah, and I would say it often has the kind of, um, what I guess I'm going to bluntly call intellectual laziness about it, where it, science is capitalized and demonstrates this weird slippage of meaning sometimes the epistemological practice and sometimes the institutions that go along with it. And so when someone says something, which actually you said earlier, but it's, uh, it's often not phrased as carefully that I'm against science mm-hmm. that on the face of it is at least initially possibly laughable if it's not well explained. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely someone who's, uh, I, I mean, I, it's, I guess it's similar to the, to the term anarchist, you know, like, I've, I have personally ascribed value to this term. Right. And so if someone describes themselves as an anarchist, I consider them someone who I want to have a series of conversations with. Sure. Whereas really, on some level, I guess we could make the argument that people who are saying that they're pro-science in this, in this sort of way in which the neo, the, the newest forms of primitivists seem to be saying you know, that they're for science, what they're really saying is they're flying their freak flag and they're basically saying... Other people who like bright eyes, <laughs> find me. <laughs> find me if you also like to talk about science. Yeah, and and definitely on Facebook, I've I've seen these people uh, uh, basically like at, be pretty explicit uh, along this line. Like all I really want is another queer identified pro science person to cuddle with. Yeah, yeah. Queer transhumanists, right? Yeah. Go beyond the body. The problems of gender are resolved. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there was something I heard recently on the the Unterrified podcast, actually, where their guest was saying, you know, "My problem with like when I read something that's anarcho primitivist, I find myself mostly agreeing. My problem is that they want to that they decided to make a black and green flag, and now they're waving a flag, and that's my problem is the the idea that there's a flag to gather mm-hmm. underneath." So I'm noticing we're getting short on time. I did want to talk about um, a couple philosophers of science, one of them being Thomas Kuhn, um, but maybe it makes sense to um, just shorten things since we ran long last time. And I guess I'll, I'll just say, uh, as a kind of capstone to what Jacoby was saying and what, the, what pro-science people in general are saying, it's, you know, I, I mostly agree with you. What I find disturbing is just this kind of desperate hunger for the truth. And um, what I've arrived at, I guess, going down different anarchist tendencies is that there's something that feels very toxic about perceived certainty or a hunger for certainty. And um, you could call it the reification of ways of knowing. You could call it 
ontotheology, you could call it Platonism, but this idea that you know, we as limited organisms can grasp at these eternal transcendental truths is something that I, I just don't believe. And that uh, the idea of seeing oneself as capable of reaching it is disconcerting to me. And so one of my favorite philosophers of science is Bas von Frassen, who wrote The Scientific Image in 1980. And what he was saying is his perspective on science, which he calls constructive empiricism, is that a scientific theory is valid so long as it adequately describes empirical phenomena. So basically he's just saying it's a way of organizing and thinking about what our senses tell us. And he is going to remain agnostic, in his words, about the fundamental nature of reality. And so what science does is not get at the fundamental nature of reality. It describes in an organized way what we see going on around us. And he has a line here that I like where he's explaining why he thinks we should stop at the empirical adequacy, so the accordance with our senses of a theory, rather than the belief in the truth, sort of capital T, if you like, of a theory. And he says both beliefs go up beyond the evidence, but, quote, in either case we stick our necks out. Empirical adequacy goes far beyond what we can know at any given time. All the results of measurement are not in. They will never all be in. And in any case, we won't measure everything that can be measured. And so he's basically saying we're already being adventurous with what we think about the truth, but as far as believing in the full, capital T, truth of a theory, it is not an epistemological principle that one might as well hang for a sheep as for a lamb. So in other words, why the need to believe beyond what the senses tell us? Why the need to imagine oneself who, you know, as this sort of gazer at the world or gazer at the reality that can comprehend all of it rather than just part of the chaotic flux of reality and limited in what we can know. I think there's something anarchist about being humble about what you can know and there's something authoritarian about dreaming that you can know everything. Well, I guess I just want to respond in some ways as to say that I'm probably going to echo what you're going to say in extremely different terms. And I guess that's maybe one of the lessons here is that people who devote or who who reify uh, a particular ideology, part of what they're demonstrating and part of what they demonstrate every day is their disconnection from what I would call everyday life. Yeah. And and so for me, I guess as a as a goal, I want to distinguish between the the monsters of reified reality and the 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 living that I do in the shadow of those and those realities and um and so science is is i guess for me just a an example of a general case which is that this is what ideology and reification looks like and um there's some quote i could pull from from vanagam in this case but um but i think that this is enough for this week yeah actually our our friend uh, jason mcquinn said to me the other week the reason people want truth so much is that they're not enjoying their lives <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for joining us this week. Oh, by the way, the date is uh, March 5th. So um, we're about, we're still running about six episodes behind. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Oh, and don't forget to email us at thebrilliant at thebrilliant.org.